1954, Linda Brown wasn't allowed to attend the Sumner School in Topeka, Kansas, just seven blocks from her home. That school was for white children. Instead, she had to attend the Monroe School, 21 blocks away, crossing a dangerous rail yard and catching a school bus to get there. In defiance of segregation, her father tried to enroll her in the white school when she was seven, but they were turned away. Fed up, he became the lead plaintiff in a landmark Supreme Court case, one we would all come to know as Brown versus Board of Education. This Supreme Court ruling declared racial segregation in schools to be unconstitutional. However, we still see de facto segregation in American schools today, with students separated now by both income as well as race. Neoclassical economic theory states that income inequality is a consequence of unequal investments in human capital. So what is human capital? Well, formally, human capital is known as the skills, knowledge, and experience possessed by an individual, but it also determines how much an individual is likely to be paid for their skills. And so education is one of the biggest aspects of human capital. Studies show that typically, the more time spent in school, the more money you are likely to earn in your lifetime. Education has long been the path to better opportunity for generations of American strivers. And many argue that if inequality starts anywhere, it's with faulty education systems. According to a New York Times article, more than half of the nation's school children are in racially concentrated school districts where over 75% of students are a single race. In addition, school districts are often segregated by income. And so the nexus of racial and economic segregation has intensified educational gaps, both between rich students and poor students, and between white students and students of color. In fact, according to National Public Radio, today, school segregation in Michigan, New York, Illinois, Maryland, and New Jersey is just as bad as it was five decades ago. The disparities are jarring. So why haven't we seen tangible policy changes? Welcome back to the Less is Less podcast. Here with me today is Taylor Coates. Taylor is poised to receive a Master's of Nonprofit Leadership from Seattle University. Her research experiences have been primarily focused on advocacy and organizing within grassroots nonprofits and establishing best practices for cultural competency within the field. She earned her bachelor's degree from Howard University, where she specialized in Black politics. Taylor has dedicated her professional career to the service of community organizations spanning several focuses, including LGBTQIA rights, racial equity, and the closure of the opportunity gap within the education system. Taylor, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Thanks so much for having me. All right, let's get to it. So education is often seen as a gateway for opportunity. It serves as a pathway to progress through which young people acquire the skills and knowledge and experiences needed to obtain higher paying jobs. But access to education and other forms of human capital are not made equal. Ronald Fryer, the Henry Lee Professor of Economics at Harvard, notably stated that if the black community were to be considered a country, they would rank number 42, which is last place in the OECD when it comes to education, with the remainder of non-students of color 
ranking around number 11. Are you surprised to see America falling so far behind in education and worse, the gap in quality of education for communities of color specifically? To be frank, um, no, I'm not very surprised to see this at all. Our nation's foundations are steeped in educational inequality. Um, while one part of our country boasts of founding the IVs, another part was forced to build them and then denied the opportunity to attend. Our history is riddled with anti-literacy laws for Black peoples. How then could we possibly feign surprise when Black students are deemed to have the lowest quality of education? I will say that a portion of the countries who boast of a top 10 spots on the OECD ranking you mentioned are far more hegemonic than the United States, uh, which in theory would impact perceptions of inequality. So J Japan, for example, is number one, I believe, and the country's population is ethically 98.1 Japanese. And I feel like that's worth mentioning. Yeah, it's interesting to see um, how the homogeneity of societies impacts the level of inequalities that we see. Um, and also when you look at countries like the Nordic countries that are often used as sort of the prototype or, you know, the, the model for how the world should be, um, diversity isn't often taken into account. A lot of these countries are very ethnically homogenous. Now, studies have shown that in cities such as New York City, for example, only 8% of black males graduating from high school are prepared for college level work. And this, this is according to the SUNY Institute for Educational Policy, um, with Latinos close behind at 11%. In Washington, DC, 8% of black eighth graders are proficient in math compared to 80% of their white counterparts. Now, you grew up in public education. So what was your experience? And what do you think um, this can be attributed to? So I've actually had the opportunity and the privilege of experiencing several different schooling models through my education. Um, I've attended private, charter, and public schools throughout the span of my K through 12 years. Um, when I was, when I reflect on my time in public school in particular, I have these really interesting flashbacks to being a new student. Um, so when I first entered public school in the eighth grade, I was immediately placed in the lowest levels of both math and English. Despite my best efforts to advocate for higher placement to my teachers, I was not taken seriously until my wonderful mother stepped in and advocated a bit more unforgivingly on my behalf. On my very first day after having been placed in these gifted courses, the first question I was asked by both my peers and teachers, neither of whom were Black, uh, was, are you in the right class? And this is an experience that is by no means unique to me. Black youth all over the country face these incredibly odd um, instances. We are either met with the expectation of expe exceptionality or the assumption of underperformance. It's upsetting and very much indicative of prevailing stereotyping and deep-rooted racism in the education system. Yeah, and you know, um, I hear I hear a lot of anecdotes similar to this, and it's it's always so disheartening, but also fascinating because it's indicative of the knowledge, the widespread knowledge that there are inequalities um, that affect certain communities. And so when they see people thriving, despite those inequalities, people are surprised. But let's unpack some of these inequalities for a moment, because, you know, education systems, of course, are traditionally thought as this crucial mechanism to address the opportunity gap. 
But what we often see is um, the societal inequalities that are entrenched within our communities being manifested in this system. And even in the case of um, school zoning, right now there's an irrefutable link between a child's zip code and their chances of success based off of school funding. So what does that say to you and and what should it say to others in your opinion about the state of education in our country? I would say that I think it further highlights that equity was not a leading consideration when these systems were developed. Um, I really like the that line though, there exists an, an indisputable link between a child's zip code and their chances of success, because it's just incredibly true. And the consequences of attempting to alter that truth are pretty severe. So there was a woman in Akron, Ohio, Kelly Williams Bohr. Um, she attempted to work around the fa this failure of the system that we're talking about now. Um, using She did so by using her father's address to enroll her daughters in a better school district. And she was actually jailed for it. To me, when parents are actually being placed in the system, like incarcerated for pursuing better opportunities for their children. This says that the state of education in our country is in a pretty sorry shape. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting to see the contrast um, in how these members of lower income communities who attempt to place their children into better schools are very harshly punished by the courts. And then you see um, on the other end of the spectrum, the college admission scandal where, you know, they get a slap on the wrist and community service. Now, we know what is happening. The question now becomes, why is this happening? Um, and I want to look at property taxes because for those who aren't aware, public school funding in the United States comes from federal, state, and local sources, but almost half of those funds come from local property taxes. So basically, the higher the property tax, the wealthier the neighborhood, the better the school, the better the teachers, the better the resources, the higher the chances of success. And, you know, the, the converse is also true. The poorer the neighborhood, the, the worse the school, typically. Um, and because of this, annual funding per student can tend to range from $4,000 per student all the way up to $15,000 per student solely based on the neighborhood that you live in. Um, now, of course, funding of public schools through these local property taxes has deep historical roots in our country, dating back to Jim Crow and suburban hostility to plans for greater equity. Um, but most advanced nations don't fund public schools with local property taxes. Instead, they provide equal per student funding from a general pool of tax revenues for all schools throughout the country. So basically, every student gets an equal amount of funding. Some nations actually also provide extra funding for low-income students to spark economic mobility. So why do you think efforts to reduce these disparities here in the U.S. have provoked controversy and, in many cases, resistance? I think it's primarily uh, based on discomfort. So when it comes to trying new systems and examining new plans, we often have to sort through folks who are uncomfortable with those things because they've never experienced them. And I would say that's like a primary reason in terms of why that's happening now. Yeah, I, I tend to agree because here's the thing. When I look at a lot of the interest groups who sort of lobby against um, creating a more equitable education system, they're often 
people who are the key beneficiaries of school segregation, the upper class. And as we know, the upper class is more likely to um, not only stay in power, but adopt policies that solely benefit them because of the political influence that often accompanies wealth. But do you think universal federal funding for public schools is likely in the future in light of this pushback? And more so, is it the answer? I think there could be some interesting opportunities if we were to shift the management of K-12 education to the national level. With national funding or any funding not contingent upon the property taxes of surrounding residents, we would have the opportunity to better regulate the quality of education and better limit funding fluctuation. With that, we could prevent such drastically different schooling experiences from year to year. So one class would get the same privileges and opportunities and quality of education as the next. To say that it's the answer to an equitable education system would be a reach, I think. Even if we were to switch to this model with collective agreement and immediate implementation, we would still have to account for the centuries worth of lack of consistency between how districts are divided and the quality of education that they received. Damage has been done and it's multi-generational. So yes, let's try a new system, but also let's you know figure out how to heal from the scars left behind by the old. I really like the idea of offering additional funding and for disenfranchised students, though. I think it's if, if executed properly, it could motivate schools to find methods of making students interested in school and learning in truth instead of penalizing and threatening through systems of truancy, which are highly policed and disproportionately affect black and brown youth. I very much agree. And I think that in um many cases when policies are implemented to address inequality, they fail to address inequity. Um, and the reality is if certain communities have, because of systemic failures, been left behind historically, then you then need to go back and rectify a lot of those inequities so that not only are they able to be upwardly mobile in society, but also um, society as a whole benefits because um, you know, when more people are productive and more people are educated, they're able to contribute to innovation and um, or economy generally does better. So it's it's really a win win. Now, I always like to say that inequality is somewhat of a progressive phenomenon. It sort of builds off of itself. It almost mutates and continues to affect more and more aspects of people's lives. The reality is someone's status as either a skilled or an unskilled worker, which is directly derived from their level of education, affects their quality of life. For years to come. So when you have people who don't receive quality education or they drop out of high school or they're graduating high school, but they're not equipped to succeed in college because of these educational gaps, the difference in classification as an unskilled worker versus if they were to be classified as a skilled worker could mean the difference of almost, you know, $80,000 a year. So that means that pay and income inequality are directly linked to educational inequalities. And both types of inequality disproportionately affect Black and Latinx communities, of course. But I'm interested to hear your take on the golden key argument. Do you see education as a golden key that magically opens up opportunities? Or are there other elements? I mean, of course, education is a cornerstone of economic mobility. But some may argue that looking solely at education is overly simplistic. What's your view? 
I think education is vital, not because it opens any sort of golden doors or give you keys to special opportunities necessarily, but because it arms us with the ability to recognize where opportunities exist. Um, I think that a quality education prompts youth and adults too, for that matter, to theorize and imagine spaces that don't yet exist. In the pursuit of manifesting those spaces, you might be met with a number of other hurdles um, blocking access to those opportunities. There are a plethora of other factors beyond education that limit upward economic mobility, as there are a number of other institutions that are bolstered by inequalities. Your education will not save you from discrimination in the labor market, exclusion from home ownership, or disproportional likelihood of incarceration. Yeah, and you know, this, I share your sentiments that there needs to be sort of this multifaceted approach to addressing um, economic inequality. And I guess that's why we're, we're all here on the podcast in the first place. But I do think that education is one of the first sort of rungs on the ladder where um, right from the get-go, certain students are very much placed at a disadvantage um, to their peers. And my take will always be that extreme inequality is never something that's simply inevitable. Even in a capitalistic society where, you know, some inequality and economic stratification is a virtue of the economy, unfortunately. But the degree of inequality that we're seeing here at the systemic level is a result of failed social policy. And so if we wish to remedy it, we will do well to remember that this issue will also respond to social policy. It's rectifiable, but the will has to be there. And in order for society to function in an effective manner, I think it's it's imperative that these policies are made to benefit the entire citizenry rather than special interest groups or those who live in neighborhoods with high property taxes. Now, this wouldn't be an inequality podcast unless we delved into the rhetoric of the elite. So as I mentioned, there has been substantial political resistance from the wealthy regarding educational reform. Let's talk about the ideology of individualism. Um, this is an ideology that basically posits that success and failure result mainly from individual effort rather than social circumstance. And Americans are very much known for this around the world. We as a society are known for a strong belief in the power of personal effort. Um, but the issue is this can often lead to beliefs that blame people who have a lack of resources at a fundamental level for their comparatively lower levels of quote unquote conventional success in life. And this goes hand in hand with another theory known as the culture of poverty thesis. And it basically argues that certain groups fail because of their traditions and subcultures. And we see this a lot when people say that some communities simply wish to be poor or they want to be on welfare or the fact that they may use slang or vernacular English means that they are not or vernacular any language for that matter means that they simply are not equipped for success. And I've always found it I found it so interesting how you know people try to hypothesize all these reasons for why certain communities are falling behind. Uh but they fail to point out the obvious reason, you know, the legacy of exploitation, current systemic inequalities, and a lack of resources afforded to certain communities that make economic mobility substantially harder. So how consequential a role do you think this rhetoric plays in the issue? Because this is a widely believed narrative. Do you think that this narrative is something or countries likely to grow out of? And if not, what are the consequences of that? I think it's been proven that we can't grow out of it without a little bit of work being done. 
Um, I would argue that it's a bit bigger than rhetoric because these are not simply statements or jargon being used to discuss the impoverished, but arguments that have been considered at a scientific level. Falsified reports like the Moynihan report are still quite present in our society today. I think this is something that our country will have to make an effort to grow out of, but it won't happen as a result of dumb luck or uh, just simply time passing, as can be seen by the fact that nothing has changed. <laughs> um, it's something that results from effort and healing and learning, and it's vital that we begin the process with haste. The consequences of failing to do so are life and death for BIPOC communities, um, and the comfort of a few is by no means worth the lives of masses. I love that you said that the comforts of the few are, are by no means worth the lives of the masses, and I, I completely agree. How do we go about debunking these flawed theories, though? Um, I think a common argument is, you know, freedom of speech and um, people can publish or people can say what they wish. But ultimately, there has to, and this goes back to the era that we're living in today with fake news. You know, where do we draw the line in terms of not only are you sharing an opinion that may be prejudiced, but now you are sort of peddling a hypothesis that has no, no real logic backing it. And it's, it's purely propaganda. You know, that's something that I'm still pondering over myself. I think that a lot of the development of fake news has accompanied our access to information. And so truth is perception. And I think it's easy to believe things about other people when you've never interacted with them, just as it's easier to not care about things that have never happened to you specifically. Um, I think this falls back on kind of like what you were saying about how our society is steeped and based in individualism. Um, and I would like to add that you're far more likely to invalidate what you fail to see yourself or experience. It falls back on what you were saying about individualism and how easy it is to believe things when you've never interacted with people from those backgrounds and how easy it is to believe things when it serves the narrative that's beneficial for you. And so how we get beyond that is something that's eluding me and I think most of the population at this point. How can we discover or develop a, a singular truth? Or how do we unite multiple truths um, across different demographics and backgrounds? Agreed. I, I think what we really need is this concerted effort to change not only this particular situation of educational and economic inequalities, but um, the divisive uh, sort of ideals that are running through our society, um, not only in, in the time that we're living in, but historically. And I, I think it behooves us to work towards a vision that emphasizes the need of a public school system that embraces the welfare, as you said, of the many instead of the few. And it upholds sort of this ideal of equal opportunity that we as a nation so often boast about, but we don't always live up to. Thank you so much for joining me today, Taylor. This has been such an insightful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I learned a lot and enjoyed talking with you. Thank you.